I live in the middle of a forest on a heavily wooded lot. After we moved in, I noticed these indentations all over my yard. At first, I thought it was some kind of rodent sort of burrowing into the pine straw. Finally, it dawned on me that these were tracks. Obviously, some big critters were nearby, but I had never seen them. They were nocturnal. And then late one night, I met them. They were eating crab apples off my trees. Evidently, the suburban sprawl had forced them into the open. A family of deer were migrating back and forth across my yard. But I saw their tracks long before I saw the deer. Now, I could tell you that a unicorn lives in my backyard, or Bigfoot's back there somewhere, or that a herd of buffalo crisscrossed my property from time to time. But with no tracks, would you believe me? Real animals leave tracks. Imaginary animals don't. And the same is true with faith. Real faith leaves behind tracks. It's not just a claim or a dream or wishful thinking. If it's real faith, you can see its tracks. And this is the theme of the book of James. Faith leaves tracks. It leaves behind multiple tracks. Faith shows up in how we handle trials and temptation and money. It's more than intentions. It produces action. It affects how we treat folks less fortunate than us. Faith works. It affects how you talk and what you say. It doesn't conform to this world, but it seeks wisdom from above. It walks humbly and it prays fervently. Faith connects connects us with other believers in meaningful ways. Real faith shows up in real life. And if your faith doesn't leave behind tracks, then perhaps it's a unicorn faith. Oh, it's a nice sentiment. It's wishful thinking. It's a figment of your imagination. But the faith you claim to have really doesn't exist. It's just a pretend faith. The book of James was written to expose unicorn faith. If faith is real, you'll see its tracks all over your life. Well, chapter one begins, James. But which James? I can think of a lot of famous folks named James. In fact, I brought with me this morning the top 10 list, the top 10 most famous Jameses are people named James. Here they are. Number 10, King James. Number nine, James Taylor. Number eight, James Bond. Take your pick, whichever one you like. Number seven, Jesse James. Number six, James Comey. Number five, James Earl Jones. I wish I could talk like that guy. Number four, if you remember my era, the James Gang. Number three, LeBron James. Number two, the King of Soul, James Brown. And we have a tie for number one. (laughs) There's Pastor James and Vernon James. How about that? But there are also a few Jameses in the Bible. Two of the 12 apostles were named James. One, the son of Alphaeus, 
the other, the son of Zebedee. In fact, Acts 12 tells us that Zebedee's boy, also the apostle John's brother, was martyred by King Herod in 44 AD. And then there was a third James, Jesus' own half-brother. In Matthew 13, verse 55, we're told that Mary had kids after Jesus was born. She had at least four boys and two girls. Her second oldest was James. And most scholars believe that the author of the book of James was this half-brother of our Lord. Now, this means that James had some initial doubts about Jesus. For during Jesus' earthly ministry, John 7, verse 5 tells us, even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, I'm sure James looked up to his big brother. But imagine having to admit that your sibling is divine. That's a tough pill for a little brother to swallow. It's often said familiarity breeds contempt. Think of it. Jesus and James, they roughhoused together. They were on the same little league team. They worked together in their dad's carpenter shop. Imagine growing up in Jesus' shadow. How could James possibly stack up? Like a lot of little brothers, he might have carried a chip on his shoulders. Yet we know what opened his eyes. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus made several special appearances. And one was to his half-brother, James. Jesus cared about James. And when James realized that Jesus had conquered death, it all clicked for him. His brother was God. And almost instantly, James went from a doubting brother to a devoted believer. And James grew very rapidly in his faith. Known among the early church as James the Just, he was a leader in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, he's the one who takes charge of the church council. James was a leader of extreme devotion. In fact, the church historian Eusebius, he writes, James would enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. You know, they called this James old camel knees. In 62 AD, James died a martyr's death. The Jews took him to the highest point of the temple without a parachute. And they ordered him to recant his faith in front of the masses. Instead, he preached boldly the gospel of his brother Jesus. And the Jews were so angry that they pushed James off the pinnacle of the temple. When he survived the fall, he knelt and he prayed for them. And the Jews beat him to death with clubs. When James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, understand there was some real street cred to those words. James' faith left deep tracks in the early church. And so he introduces himself. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, James was the blood brother of our Lord on his mother's side. And if a family affiliation ever counted for something, this would be it. Imagine, James could have flaunted his status. He could have said, James, the Savior's closest sibling. Or James, the baby brother of God. How's that for a title? Instead, notice he refers to himself 
as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. After spending his whole life in Jesus' shadow, this is his chance to finally drop some names and take advantage of their relationship, but no way. James is only a servant. Like us, he's a sinner saved by grace. It was honor enough for him to be bondservant or love servant of his Lord. James now worshiped the brother he once resented. And he writes, To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now twice in the Old Testament, Israel was conquered by invading armies. And they were scattered across foreign lands. Many Jews never returned home. And little Jewish enclaves sprang up all around the world. But as the gospel spread, it reached these dispersed communities. And many of the Jews believed in Jesus. And James here wants to write them a letter of encouragement. The fact that this letter is addressed exclusively to Israel's 12 tribes could mean that it was written prior to the gospels reaching the Gentiles as early as 45 AD. This would make James one of the first New Testament letters written. And its author here cuts right to the chase. He speaks to the felt need of his audience. For no matter where they lived, the first believers were strangers in a strange land. They were blazing a new trail. They were cutting a path where there had been no path. For the Christian way of life was sure to stand out and draw fire. You can bet the early Christians suffered heavy trials for their faith in Jesus. And thus James begins... My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice it's not if you fall into trials, but it's when you fall into trials. For all Christians face trials. I wish I could say that being a Christian immunizes you from hardship, but it doesn't. James mentions various trials. That's different types from different sources. You know, sometimes we suffer from our own mistakes. Our trials are of our own making. At other times, the suffering is unjust. On still other occasions, the specific reason for the trial remains a mystery, other than we live in a fallen world. And at times, we suffer for Jesus' sake. We suffer various trials. And this is why we shouldn't fixate on the trial's source or intensity, but rather on its purpose. For the only way that you can count it all joy or be happy over a trial is to be locked onto its purpose. And this is why James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You see, the purpose of a trial is to create patience or endurance in our lives. This Greek term here, hupomeno, it means to remain under or to persevere. See, trials provide us resistance training. When our faith is pushed, that's when it grows stronger. Real faith grows only under pressure. It's been said no one sharpens a knife on a stick of butter. You need some friction. And God uses trials to sharpen our faith. You know, for a time, seafood distributors who shipped codfish from New England across the country, they had a problem. In the beginning, they tried to ship frozen cod, 
but the freezing process robbed the meat of its flavor. Well, the answer was to ship the fish alive in a tank of seawater. But even then, the fish ended up tasting mushy and flavorless when they were cooked. That's when someone had an idea. You see, the cod's natural enemy is the catfish. And so a couple of catfish were dropped into the tank of cod. All the while the cod were on the road, they were being chased by the catfish. And the vigilance it took to survive is what kept the cod fresh and delicious. And this is what your trials will do for you. God puts a catfish or two in our tank so our faith doesn't get flabby. So we stay delicious spiritually. And it's interesting in verse 3, notice, James tells us that the Christian knows this truth. You ask, how can a Christian intuitively know that trials should produce endurance? Well, every Christian has been to the cross, haven't we? And at the cross of Christ, God turned the worst trial into the supreme triumph. At the very heart of our salvation, we're taught that God works miracles through trials. It's his way. Well, verse 5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you're in the midst of a trial this morning, ask God for wisdom not to waste that trial. Ask him to show you what you should be learning from the trial that you're enduring. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You know, doubt is like an ocean wave. It rolls in, then it rolls out, back and forth, back and forth. I trust and I don't. I trust and I worry. Real faith, though, is unfazed by circumstances. To the doubter, James says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You need to know that doubt takes you out from under God's spout. It does. Doubt forfeits his blessings. It robs us of what God wants to do in our lives. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And in verse 8, James says of the doubter, He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. In his allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan refers to the doubter as Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word here. A doubter is a fence straddler. On Monday, he walks with God, but by Friday, he's right back living for himself. He can't decide his direction and gives 100% to neither. That makes him an unhappy saint and a miserable sinner. See, God wants us to be all in in terms of living for him. Well, we're told in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. Spiritually speaking, before God, we're all on equal ground, both the poor man and the rich man. A person's money has no effect on their spiritual status. He says, For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, 
so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Wealth is temporary. As Shakespeare once penned, golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust. Death is the great equalizer. We are all here today, gone tomorrow. I have three azaleas in my yard that once blossomed at the Augusta National Golf Club. They were my son's gifts to his mom on Mother's Day. They bloom and they stand out, oh, for maybe two weeks a year before they turn green like every other common bush in my yard. And so it is with a rich man. His glory fades quickly. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has approved, been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, in contrast to material wealth, spiritual crowns last forever. And a crown of life is awarded to believers who endure trials and temptations. See, crowns on earth are worn by members of the ruling class. And so it is spiritually. A crown is awarded to the believer who learns how to rule over his own temptations. Resistance to temptation is a track mark of real faith. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, Oh, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Don't you dare play the blame game. I've heard folks basically blame their sins on God. Like it was God's duty to reach down out of heaven and grab them by the seat of the pants and pull them out of that temptation situation at the last second. No way. Resisting temptation is our choice. And our choices trigger a chain reaction. He says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. See, this is where it starts. God doesn't cause temptation. It starts when we are drawn away by our own sinful lusts. An evil thought. A selfish perspective. Martin Luther once referred to lustful thoughts as birds. He said, I can't keep them from flying over my head, but I can keep them from nesting in my hair. See, it's when we dwell on the evil thought, when we taste it and savor it, that's what gets us in trouble. That's when we begin to yield to it. And that's my choice. For when that desire has conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. When an inner evil that has been nurtured meets an opportunity to be acted on, then full-blown sin results. When the egg of desire gets fertilized by an opportunity at hand, then presto, you got a baby on your hands. And hiding that sin is as difficult as hiding a baby. For when sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. If you never repent, and if you never turn from that outward evil, then death results. Your life begins to spiral down, downward. See, full-blown sin turns into full-grown lifestyle. Sin is a slippery slope that ends in destruction. Jot it down. Sin always results in unintended consequences. Let me say that again. 
Sin always results in unintended consequences. One day you wake up in a place you never wanted to go. With people you never wanted to be with. Suffering in ways that you had never planned. Facing a nightmare you never dreamed of. And it's all because of that little evil thought that you allowed to nest in your hair. And you cultivated it. And you nurtured it. That's where it begins. It says in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And here is the key to overcoming temptation. You won't sin if you are convinced that everything good and perfect comes from God. Friends, Satan runs a secondhand shop. Why settle for hand-me-downs? God is the one who supplies the best. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Once an impulsive buyer, he froze all his credit cards in a block of ice. Before he could make a purchase, he had to wait until the ice melted. That's good thinking. It gave this man time to contemplate, time to think. And that's what we need to do when we're tempted. We need to think. Hey, every good and perfect gift comes from God in heaven. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is speaking here of the new birth we have in Christ. By trusting in God's word, we become a new breed of people, a new crop of humanity never before seen. He uses a farmer's metaphor. We're the first fruits of a spiritual harvest. God dwells in us. And in the next verses, he lists the tracks that prove God's presence. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Now here's a track left behind by God. The person that he inhabits will be swift to hear and slow to speak. After all, God created us with what? With two ears and with one mouth. That means we should listen twice as much as we talk. Ever hear the guy who spoke multiple languages? He was given the ultimate compliment. Someone said he knew how to stay silent in seven languages. In addition, God makes us slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. How true is that? Rarely are God's purposes achieved by our anger. Our wrath only bruises and hurts and further alienates. When we vent, we only make matters worse. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice it is the implanted word. The word that takes root in your mind and infiltrates who you are that is able to save your soul. Just like that implanted evil thought leads you, leads you down a long trail of destruction. Likewise, it's the implanted word of God that's able to save our souls and deliver us from evil. He says, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. D.L. Moody once said, every Bible should be bound with shoe leather. In other words, the Bible is for doing, not just for hearing. You know, some church members, I'm afraid, are like professional wine tasters. Oh, they smell the wine, and they'll sip it, and they'll roll it around in their mouth. Oh, but they never swallow it. And that's how folks treat the Bible. They analyze its presentation, and they sample its taste without ever letting it get deep inside them. They have a superficial appreciation of God's Word, but their behavior remains unaltered by its truth. See, James tells us, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Imagine yourself glancing in a mirror after eating a hot dog and noticing mustard all over your mouth and your chin and yet doing nothing about it. That's the hearer only. We're alerted to what's wrong, but we fail to act on it. See, some of us know the Bible out the wazoo, but somehow we avoid its influence. He says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Under the Old Testament law, people were bound to what the law said, but they lacked the power to carry it out. Whereas the new covenant, the perfect law of liberty, as James calls it, not only instructs us, but empowers us. We can now be more than hearers of God's will. We can be doers. And in the next few verses, he identifies a few more of the tracks left behind by real faith. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... But deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Faith that grabs hold of a person's heart will control their wagging tongue. He says in verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you want to track a genuine faith, then look for two things. Look for compassion to the lonely and a desire for purity. Compassion to the lonely and a desire for purity. As far back as I can recall until she died, on Sunday afternoons, my dad would drive downtown to visit his invalid sister in a nursing home. Dad would buy Anna Coke And then he'd roll her wheelchair around and they would sit down together and he would chit-chat with her for an hour over basically nothing. My dad worked hard all week long, spent Saturdays raising his boys, went to church Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon was his only time to relax. But my dad made that visit every single week. And often as he left the house, he would quote James 1 verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. I think my dad needed to remind himself from time to time. Hey, you can talk of loving God till you're blue in the face, but real faith leaves behind tracks. Well, chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Lord of glory with partiality. In other words, don't play favorites in terms of how you treat people. He says, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, man, he's sporting the bling. And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And then say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there. You sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Hey, on the flight to heaven, the cabin is not divided into first class and coach. Jesus accepts us just as we are and right where we're at. And this is how he expects us to treat each other. Don't treat the rich or the hip or the beautiful or the young any differently than you would treat the poor or the odd or the ugly or the old. The banker and the bag lady should get equal love. While in South Africa, Mohandas Gandhi he became impressed with the teachings of Jesus. And he thought of converting to Christianity until he attended a Christian church. And when he saw the prejudice among its members, he concluded, if Christians have caste differences of their own, I might as well stay Hindu. How sad for anyone in God's family to feel second class. It shouldn't be. Once a street person went to join a church, the pastor wasn't sure that the church wanted her type. He told her to give him a week or so to think it over. But the week went by and still no decision. He then said he needed another week and on and on this went. Finally, in prayer one day, the Lord spoke to this woman and said, My child, don't worry about joining that church. I've been trying for 20 years and they won't let me in either. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? I mean, they're the ones most likely to harm you. Why are you exalting them? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said that the Spirit was upon him to preach the gospel to the poor. And Jesus targeted the poor, and we should be kind to them as well. Don't show favoritism to the rich man, is what he's saying. In fact, the wealthy are the ones that are often threatened by Jesus. Folks who make money their idol or who assume earthly stuff brings fulfillment. They're the ones who have no interest in making Jesus their Lord. Put a small coin over the eye, over your eye. Just a small little coin. And do you realize that small coin can block out a huge mountain? See, this is the effect that money can have on our faith in God. It can get in the way. God targets the poor, for it's easier for a poor man to trust in Jesus than it is for a man loaded with money. And then James continues in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Hey, the royal law, which is the law that reigns supreme, the law above all other laws. Jesus identified it for us in Mark chapter 12. You remember he identified the two greatest commandments. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's this love for one's neighbor that should prohibit this evil of partiality here. As a Christian, I can have a close circle of friends as long as it never becomes a closed circle of friends. He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is saying, break one of the 613 Old Testament laws, and you've become guilty of breaking them all. The law of Moses required perfections. You had to bat a thousand. And this is why in Christ we are set free from the law. For the odds of us obeying all the laws all the time are zero. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You see, instead of God expecting us to obey all the laws, he has put his love in our hearts. And living out that love is the law that we've now been called to keep. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One day we'll stand before God. And if we want his judgment to be tempered by mercy then, we need to show mercy now. Verse 14. So what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? In other words, is there such a thing as faith without tracks? What if a person claims faith but their life shows no evidence of it? Verse 15 tells us, That true saving faith is not just words, but action. He says, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, a mere blessing doesn't feed a man. It won't keep a man warm. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As we've said, real faith leaves tracks. A legit faith leaves an imprint. I'll act on what I truly believe and say. Real faith, that is saving faith, the faith that gets you to heaven is belief to the point of action. Charles Blondin was a famous acrobat. On June the 30th, 1859, he crossed Niagara Falls on a three-inch rope. That's 1,100 feet across the falls he walked, and that's 160 feet above the falls he walked on a three-inch rope. Over that summer, Blondin did all kinds of stunts on the tightrope above the falls. He did a backward somersault. He crossed blindfolded. He pushed a wheelbarrow across. He walked on stilts. 
He crossed at night one time. He even cooked an omelet on a portable stove halfway across the falls. But Charles Blondin's most amazing feat on the wire above Niagara Falls came on September the 15th, 1860. Before crossing that day, he asked the crowd, Do you believe that I can carry a man across that rope on my back? And everyone roared, Yes, we believe. That's when he asked for a volunteer. And of all the folks who claimed to believe, none were willing to climb on Blondin's back. None. Their lack of action betrayed their claim of faith. Finally, one man stepped forward. It was Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord. Harry had already tied his future to Blondin's daring. Why not go all in and trust him with his life? And this should be our reaction. If we really trust Jesus, if we've really gone all all in, then why not climb on our Savior's back and let him carry us? Why not tie every area of our lives to Jesus? You see, real faith, saving faith, the faith that gets you to heaven isn't a spectator faith. It's an all-in faith. He says in verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, it's true, faith is faith, And works are works. Don't turn faith into another work. We're made right with God, not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. Our faith is in his work. Salvation is by faith alone. But if you're really saved, faith will never be alone, for it will be accompanied by works and loving action. See, some people here point to a supposed contradiction or a conflict between Paul and James, especially later in verse 24 where James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. That seems to contradict Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In fact, Martin Luther was so upset with the book of James, he called it a right strawy epistle. He included it in the canon of Scripture, but he failed to put it on the same level as the rest of the New Testament. It was strawy, not golden. But this supposed conflict between Paul and James gets cleared up when you realize the author's perspectives. See, Paul was a theologian. A theologian is adept at breaking down abstract ideas. He deciphers steps and he deals with cause and effect. He breaks things apart. Whereas James was a carpenter. He cared about end results. He put things together. The procedures you followed building a chair didn't really matter as long as you ended up with a handsome and a sturdy piece of furniture, according to James. And this is how the two men dealt with salvation. Paul untangled the individual threads. Faith alone is the cause, while fruits of the Spirit and good works are the result. Whereas James just saw it all as one big giant cross stitch. 
He was so sure that faith produced works that he saw salvation as a package deal. If a life didn't show good works, then it obviously didn't possess real faith. Paul x-rayed the roots of faith. James admired the fruits of faith. Paul says faith comes first and should never be confused with works. But James says works always follows faith. Works are the evidence of faith. Put both viewpoints together and you see a complete picture. A faith that saves is a faith that works. And then he says in verse 19, which helps clear some things up. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. See, faith is obviously more than just an intellectual assent. Even the demons are orthodox in their doctrine. Just an agreement on the facts doesn't constitute real faith. Here's a side note. The demons tremble, James says. This word tremble, it means to bristle up. The idea is a hair-raising experience. In other words, a demon's faith in God doesn't save him. It merely frightens him. His realization of God's judgment causes the hair on the back of his red little neck to stand straight up, you know. He says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And he gives us an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? Abraham believed in God's resurrection power. But if he had not obeyed and been willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, how could he say his faith was real? In other words, if you pray for rain in the morning, then leave the house without an umbrella, you haven't prayed in faith. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. He quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Abraham was declared right with God 22 years before he was told to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Obviously, his faith came first, and it stood alone for 22 years. Only later was it confirmed by his obedience. He says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And in the context in which James is speaking, he's right if faith inevitably produces good works, then you can't have real faith without works. Again, Paul broke down the Christian life into its individual parts, faith and work, while James sees it as a continuum. Faith leads to works. James isn't worried about where faith ends and works begin. He sees both as an unbroken chain. Certainly they do begin and end. And that's Paul's concern, not James's. In James's mind, we are justified by both faith and works. How can you separate the root from its fruit? Here's another example. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works which she received the, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? It's the same idea. Her faith in God was validated when she assisted the Jewish spies who were representing God's people. For as the body without the spirit is dead, 
So faith without works is dead also. And notice here, we're given a definition of when physical death occurs. Here's how God considers it. When the spirit departs the body, that's when you're dead. Once the eternal part of a person vacates the body, then the body, the empty shell, is all that's left. It's dead. And likewise, a faith that has lost its heart and its guts and its vigor and its zeal and its effort is as good as dead. For real faith leaves tracks. Make sure your faith isn't a unicorn faith, just an imaginary pretend faith. If you truly trust Jesus, then live like it.